Please have your uh, Bibles remained open to Acts 16, as we now kind of focus on this passage before us. Although I grew up in an evangelical free church, much like this one, and had, had parents who both lived out the gospel and, and taught me the gospel, um, my heart's desire when I was in my teens was not to follow Christ. Instead, I was enthralled with the world. I did whatever I wanted to do and didn't care about what God had to say about it. Yet I was in a loving Christian family and a church that faithfully taught the Bible. So I became pretty good at living a double life. I would act like a Christian on Sundays and while I was at home, but I would act like the world every other day of the week with my friends and my classmates. But by God's grace, in the summer before my senior year of high school, I came to believe the gospel. And I began to earnestly follow Jesus as Lord. And so I showed up at school that fall, a, a changed young man. But because I had lived this double life for so long, because I had gotten so good at putting on a show for others, it, it all kind of felt a little strange to me. Many of my friends at school still treated me the same, expected me to you know, behave like I always did. Uh, several people at church I know were still a little skeptical. And I don't blame them for I had been you know, pretending for so long. I know some of my teachers and youth leaders had seen through my acting job and had known that I was a fraud, maybe because I was kind of hard on them while they tried to teach me. And to be honest, there were many days when I wasn't too sure myself. You know, maybe I was a fraud. Was, was I really a Christian? Had the Lord really changed my heart? Was I, was I really right with God? At the time, I wasn't really close with my pastor. He had just arrived at our church a little over a year before. He was nice, but he wasn't really involved much in the youth group. Uh, so my interactions with him were just limited to, you know, shaking his hand after the worship services on Sunday, just saying hello. Um, but as my senior year went on, he really made an effort to talk to me more. Uh, my church had, had, had a fellowship hall that was, um, you know, the size of, uh, of a half-court gym. And they had put up a basketball hoop uh, in there. And uh, once they did that, I worked it out to get a key to the church. And so anytime I wanted to, I could go to the church and shoot uh, buckets and work on my game. Um, and, of course, that means that since I was 16 years old, I've never been without a key to a church building. Uh, <laughs> I could get in any time without asking anyone else. Uh, but during, during, during my senior year, if I had any free time, I would be in my church, not to pray, not to read the Bible, but, but to shoot baskets. And my, my, my pastor's study was just down the hall from the gym, and so if I was there, he would always stop in and say hi and talk to me for a little bit. He wouldn't uh, shoot baskets with me. Sports was definitely not his thing. Uh, but he would spend a few minutes talking, and we gradually got to know each other better. Uh, during the next summer, then, after I graduated, one of those days that I was at uh, the church shooting buckets, my pastor stopped in and asked if I had a few minutes to talk. And he then encouraged me to be baptized. He said he knew that I'd come to believe the gospel, 
the, the previous summer. He had observed how I was acting and he saw me grow in my faith over the year, but he said it was important for me to, to, to go public with my profession, that it was important to publicly acknowledge my faith and trust in Jesus, to do just as our last song said, to show that I was on the Lord's side. I wasn't on the world's side, I was on the Lord's side. At first I thought, oh man, no way, I don't, I don't want to do that, you know, I I shared with my, with my pastor how at times I questioned whether or not I really was right with God, I really was doing what I was supposed to be doing, that I still struggled with sin, that I was afraid that if I stood up and publicly professed my faith in Christ that it would put you know, more pressure on me to then have to live up to that profession. So I argued with, with, with my pastor using some of those reasons and he looked at me and said, well, Clint, why don't you pray about it? But I think that each of those reasons that you just gave me for why you don't think you should be baptized are actually the very reasons for why you should be baptized. So this morning, what we are doing, we're doing a little bit of what my pastor did with me on that day, all those years ago. We are going to take a few minutes to talk about baptism from Acts chapter 16. So the main uh, theme of Acts 16 that uh, Dennis just read for us we're focusing on this morning is that baptism confirms the reality of faith and God's saving work in the life of a believer. I could have selected many other passages regarding baptism, but I chose this one for three main reasons. It shows the the role that baptism played within the early church and how it was practiced. Secondly, is a text which Christians who have differing views on baptism will point to in order to defend their view. That is, whether or not we should, only, uh, we should focus on baptizing children of believers or only baptize believers who have uh, professed faith in Christ. So I thought it'd be good for us to focus on this passage and, and, and ask us, what is it really saying about baptism? And third, um, I really love this story. This is a great story. Probably my favorite um, part of the book of Acts right here. So I thought, man, I'd love to look at this passage again. So um, first of all, verses 25 um, through 28, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, Paul's personal testimony could be summarized by the statement that uh, the prophet Jonah makes in chapter 2 of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord, for it was the Lord's direct action rather than Paul's that made him a believer, that made him an apostle. He was a devoted Pharisee who was driven by an intense passion to see the church of Jesus Christ be eliminated, be wiped out. He was a leader in the persecution of believers 
happily engaging in the killing and capturing of Christians and locking them up. And it was right in the middle of that time when his whole mindset was set against Christ that the Lord Jesus revealed himself to him and made him a Christian. At that moment, when he was working against the Lord, the Lord saved him and transformed his life. And here again, in our passage, the Lord shows that salvation belongs to him. Paul and Silas have been put in prison because they have been proclaiming the gospel and they had, they had set a slave girl free from demon possession and so the magistrates of the city had allowed those who were upset with them for doing this to beat them. And then the jailer had been charged to put them in the, in the stocks in the middle of the prison. And now in verse 25, it is midnight and amazingly Paul and Silas are praying and singing to God. And we know, friends, that this could only happen. This could only happen because God had done an incredible transforming work in their hearts. Rather than complaining about their circumstances and cursing the men who were responsible for putting them there, these two believers were blessing God for his grace. Only someone who has been transformed supernaturally could respond in such a way to those circumstances. God's grace is powerful. And God's saving power is shown to be powerful through this great earthquake that happens. The prison doors were opened. All the prisoners' bonds were unfashioned. Not just that their chains fell off the walls, but they, you know, the, these chains that they were chained up with indeed were unfastened. They fell completely off of their ankles, allowing the prisoners to be able to run free if they chose to. Now, why did this happen? Well, if you look back at verses 23 and 24, we, we see there that the jailer had taken these two servants of God, and after they had already been beaten with many blows, it says, he then put them into the inner prison, that is the most secure one, and fastened their feet in the stocks. And Paul and Silas, these innocent evangelists who were representing the Lord by preaching his message and setting people free from a demonic possession and influence were being treated here with absolute contempt as if they were a great threat to the people of Philippi, God's servants. And so God decides to show that jailer and everyone else that he is able to set his people free any time he chooses. They cannot keep his messengers secure under their power, God's greater power and greater authority can work salvation for them and for anyone whom he desires to set free. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 27, we see the jailer wakes up, realizes quickly the prison doors are open and chains are off, and so he presumes that the men had been, uh, that he had been ordered to keep in prison, that they had escaped. And he immediately decides right there to kill himself. 
because, well, he would have been killed anyway since he would be held responsible for the prisoner's escape. It was considered more honorable to kill yourself than to be shamed and executed by your superiors. But the prisoners had not escaped. Paul yells out to the jailer, they are all still there, which was another unbelievable reality that this jailer was, was seeing. They, they could have run, any other prisoners would have run, but Paul made sure the prisoners all remained in order to save this man's life. Like the Apostle Paul, this jailer was about to discover the reality for himself that salvation truly does belong to the Lord. Verses 29 then through 32, we see salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The jailer, having recognized who Paul was as the prisoner that he had just put in the stocks a few hours before, and also the same prisoner who was leading songs and prayers to God just prior to this earthquake, he now realizes that Paul has also just saved his life. So the jailer rushes in and says, you know, it says here, he was trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he asked this famous question, right? What must I do to be saved? The big question we ought to have in order to understand why he is asking this particular question is, what or who is the jailer asked to be saved from? And I think the answer must relate directly to why this jailer was trembling with fear. What or who made him so scared? The answer to that question, I think, will help us all to get a greater understanding of just what it means when you and I, or Christians in general, talk about being saved. What does that mean? This man had just lived through an earthquake, which could have killed him. And this man is well aware of just who was behind this earthquake. He knows that the reason why Paul was in prison was because he was a messenger of God. He had heard Paul praying to this God. He had heard Paul singing hymns to this God, which, which no doubt would have declared the great works of God, which is what the subject of, hymns, of the hymns of the church ought to be, you know, declaring the greatness of God for his works of salvation. And so this guy is, is, is no dummy. He put two and two together and realized that this God, this God was responsible for the earthquake, which then set free his servants. So now the jailer is considering, what is his relationship like with this God? God's word tells us in Romans 1 that what can be known about God is plain to all men. God has revealed himself in nature. Men know there is a God. We know. It's in us. But Romans 1 says that we suppress that truth about God by unrighteousness. 
This man knew there was a God, a divine creator that he was responsible to, and now he was under great conviction that he must be under this God's condemnation because he knew he was responsible for putting God's servants in the stocks in his prison. This jailer was trembling with fear, not because he feared the judgment of his superior officer. He was trembling with fear because he feared the judgment of God Almighty, the one who just made it clear that he is able to do whatever he pleases. So what must I do to be saved? It is a cry for salvation from the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God against one's sinful rebellion. And Paul's answer? Well, it is not that the jailer must become a member of a church. It is not that the jailer must do some special kind of work in order to please this God. His answer is not even that the jailer must be sure to release Paul and Silas, to set them free from prison. No, no, Paul's answer to the man who had locked him up in the stocks is that he must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he would do that, he would be saved. That his salvation is summarized in faith or trust alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If this man would depend on nothing else but the work of that the Lord Jesus had accomplished on his behalf through Jesus' righteous life and a sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, if you depend upon that and nothing else, he would be saved from God's condemnation. But Paul also holds out the promise for the man's family as well. He says, you and your household. Paul wasn't just interested in this man's salvation, he was also concerned about the salvation of his entire household, which would possibly include a wife, children, maybe parents, possibly a few servants. And we are told that Paul and Silas then preached God's word to all those who were in the jailer's house. They preached that salvation from God's condemnation for our sin and rebellion only comes through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. That is the gospel message. Are are you putting your hope and faith in that gospel message? That it's all Christ, what he has done for us, and not what we can do for him. The last two verses here then, 33 and 34. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What this is telling us here is baptism confirms the faith of a believer. So what happens here? Does the jailer come to faith? Well, we're not told that initially. We aren't told that until the end of verse 34, but we are shown in verse 33, just look at what, 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 what we're shown there, it definitely points to the spiritual transformation that only comes by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what it tells us the jailer does after Paul had preached the gospel to him and his household. It says, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This jailer had brought these prisoners home with him and washed their wounds. Later set food before them and ate with them. The man who had just hours earlier 
locked up Paul and Silas in the stocks, was now serving them and ministering to their needs. That's a transformed life, my friends. This is a believer we're seeing. This is a man who has been saved and whose heart has been filled with love for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So because he had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and because he had clearly shown evidence of his faith in the Lord Jesus by his actions of mercy, we are then told he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, finally, pastor's getting to baptism, yes. But it's important for us to focus on what comes before baptism, isn't it? Which I think this passage reveals to us pretty clearly. But first of all, well, what is baptism? What does it mean when God's word says he was baptized? What is this referring to? Well, when the Lord Jesus was about to ascend into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the Father, he gave orders for his disciples to follow. The disciples were to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew 28, 19. To baptize means, what the word means, to immerse, to immerse in water. So John the Baptist, the one whom God sent to prepare his people for receiving Jesus as Savior, would baptize people or immerse them into the Jordan River. John's baptism was one of, it says, repentance of sins in order to prepare the people for receiving the Lord Jesus when he arrived, when he came. The baptism of the Lord Jesus, uh, the, the, the baptism that Jesus commands in Matthew 9, uh, 28, commands the church uh, to practice this baptism. It's a baptism which will set aside or mark the people who have come to believe and follow him as Lord, those who have become disciples. So it's a rite of initiation, you could say. A rite of initiation into the people of God. Matthew, Matthew 28, um, in that passage, the ones who are commanded to be baptized are new disciples. That is, they, they are learners or they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ones who are being taught to observe or follow all of the Lord's commands. And when a disciple is baptized, it is a way for each one to know and remember that the Lord, as he, as he promises in that passage, will be with them always to the end of the age. Now the book of Acts that we're in is a record of sorts of the church following the Lord's command to go and make disciples. And what we see the church doing throughout the book of Acts is we see them proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and then baptizing those who respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. In the book of Acts, every new believer is baptized. An unbaptized Christian would be something that would be unheard of to the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and empowered the disciples to speak the gospel in different languages to all who were gathered in Jerusalem. The apostle Peter got up and preached this, this great sermon and many Jews were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and asked Peter what they must do about that. And Peter responded to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what they did. And the apostles baptized about 3,000 souls that day. That is, 3,000 new believers were immersed in water. Doesn't say where, maybe in the Jordan River, maybe in one of the pools around the temple complex, but they were immersed in water as a way of showing what had just taken place in their hearts. So in our passage in Acts 16, that's what we see taking place. The people who are being baptized are, it says, the jailer and all his family. And, and, and what have we just been told about them? We have been told that the jailer had come under heavy conviction and he had believed he was condemned. He believed he was under God's just wrath for his sins and for how he treated God's servants, and he was a desperate man. He was desperate to know just how he could be saved from God's condemnation. The Apostle Paul then, who is the Lord's messenger, proclaimed the word of God to him, commanding him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And note here that he is to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, it says, as master, not just as Savior, as some have taught, the only way to be saved is to believe in who Jesus Christ really is, and he is Lord. So submit yourself to him. And that's what this man does. We are told Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So they go to his house. They all hear the gospel. They're all commanded to believe in Christ as Lord, and they believed God's word and trusted Christ. Then it says they were baptized. So we believe that those who should be baptized, according to the Bible, are those who have believed, those who have heard the word of God and have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are following him. That is, those who have already been made disciples. We believe baptism is a sign and seal of the reality of faith that has already taken place in the life of a believer. When a disciple gets into the water and is put under the water by the pastor and then brought up out of the water and welcomed out of the water by their church family, each part of that is symbolic. So as the believer gets into the water, it symbolizes the person who was under the power of sin and rebellion. Then conversion happens in this life as the believer confesses his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the pastor then immerses or dunks the believer under the water, symbolizing that the believer is now dead to that old way of life. He's now dead to the world. He's now dead to the power of sin over his life. The sin being condemned by God on the cross of Christ. He's dead to that. As Christ died for sin and was put into the grave, so the believer is put into the grave of going under the water. But then, just as Christ emerged out of the tomb on the third day, raised to new life, so the believer is raised up out of the water, raised to new life in Christ. Christ shed blood and water on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and the believer is immersed in water, washed in baptism by water, symbolizing the washing clean of all 
of his sins. Then as a believer comes out of the water, he or she is welcomed by the church who were all there witnessing the baptism. And then the church welcomes the new believer into their fellowship as one of their own, saying in effect, you're not one of us. You are a follower of Christ along with us. Baptism is, is a lot like a wedding service. It's like the exchange of rings between a groom and a bride. You know, just, just wearing a wedding ring doesn't make you a husband or a wife. Just like going through baptism doesn't necessarily make somebody a Christian. No, no, what, what the ring does is it symbolizes and represents the covenant of marriage that a man or a woman has made to their spouse before God. That wedding ring is a sign and a seal that you are indeed married, that you have come into a new state of being. That ring is a public declaration of who this person is to all who see it. Now, can you get married without a ring? Let's say we get to the point of the wedding service where we exchange rings, but the best man realizes at that moment he left the rings in the hotel room, which I know if you've been to services, you know, that sometimes they act like they've left the ring somewhere else, that they don't have it. But let's just say he really has. The rings are not there, and you're in the middle of the wedding service, okay? Can that bride and groom still officially be married without rings? So of course they can. Of course they can. But yet, something is, is missing, isn't it? Everybody knows it's missing. Or what if a bride and groom decided that, well, they're going to be unconventional and they don't need wedding rings at all. I mean, you know, why wear a ring? I mean, they know that they are married, right? That's all that matters. They know that they're married to each other. But yet, that is still communicating something, isn't it? In our culture, if a couple did that, it would seem like, well, they're, tr they're trying to hide something, aren't they? Trying to hide the fact that they're actually married. They're not making their commitment to each other public. And that is similar to a Christian deciding that, that they don't need to be baptized. Or a believer not wanting to go through baptism. It, it's, it's like a wedding without the exchange of rings. It's, it's like a wife who doesn't wear her ring whenever she goes out in public. She is still officially married, but, but something is missing. Now, I listened to my pastor's advice. I heeded his counsel. And I was baptized by him that summer. And my baptism was a, was a confirmation of my faith in Christ because I publicly professed my faith to my church and my friends who were there. I stood up before them. I announced that Christ was my Lord that I belong to him. I remember seeing some of my Sunday school teachers who I used to terrorize, wipe away tears as I shared my testimony. And then I got into the water and my pastor baptized me, affirming that I was in Christ, that I was a Christian. And from then on, whenever I had those doubts in my heart, when, when I would start to believe that you know, maybe, maybe it's, 
it's all not real, maybe I really haven't been changed, I would remember that warm July Sunday when I stood before my church family right next to our town's swimming pool and professed my faith in Christ and then was baptized by my pastor and welcomed out of the waters by my church family as one of them. It was a special day for me and it was a special day for my faith, a special day for them as well, as they were able to witness once again the saving power of God through the gospel. So if you are a believer and have not come forward for baptism, please talk to me. We are going to plan a baptism service for the summer. I already have one uh, that wants to be baptized, and I'd love for you to be a part of that service. Baptism truly is a gift given to us by the Lord Jesus to affirm our faith, to affirm his saving work of grace in our hearts and in our lives. And I encourage you, don't miss out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and uh, just amazing, amazing passage about your saving work in the life of a family. And Lord, there are families sitting in here this morning that you have done a saving work in, and I praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do works of grace in and through us. Particularly, Lord, I pray that you would draw people who are following you, and they have made a commitment in their heart to follow the Lord Jesus, but they have not publicly professed that. Lord, that they would, and they would receive the blessings and that the church also would receive the blessings of witnessing their baptism. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.